Ingram Smith, Bud Elliott, back again for another episode of the Cast. But we have an awful lot of listener questions to get through or get to, hopefully get through. We'll do as many as we can. If we have a couple left over, that's not the end of the world either. As always, want to thank our friends in New Iberia, Louisiana. Three simple ingredients, one fantastic product, Louisiana hot sauce, driving force behind the Cast. Uh, since day one and a great partner for us, but still kind of still kind of shaking off uh, <laughs> the remnants of last weekend. But uh, I've had some interesting news on the recruiting trail. Most of that is is positive. So why don't we go ahead and jump off that, start on a high note, and then uh, jump into of questions that we have to go through tonight. Absolutely, man. There's if we have some positive news around Florida State nowadays, let's let's go ahead and jump into that. So let's start with that recruiting news up. Uh, just a couple things. Uh, recruit uh, Malik Klain, who is a kind of jumbo receiver, but also has nice straight line speed, uh, is, is looking really good for IMG. I know they have a game uh, Thursday night as well, so we'll see what he does tonight. But he had a big-time uh, night on national TV the other night, so that was pretty cool to see. And it looks like he may be a, a bit of a steal for the Noles, although he's not particularly uh, like a sleeper. I mean, people know he's, he's a good player, and uh, and they were able to beat out some, some other good teams for his services. Uh, speaking of a guy who you know maybe a little bit under the radar nationally uh, is Luke Altmaier, their quarterback commit, who is still committed, and as far as we know, is still pretty solid to the Noles. Bama pursued him for a while, and then they flipped Jalen Milrow from Texas, as we spoke about five or six weeks ago now. Uh, one of the things with Altmaier that we had noticed uh, was that he had pretty good athletic testing numbers, but his rushing stats, uh, which are an indication of future success in college, you, you can you can track this pretty well. If, if guys don't don't have good run numbers, uh, they typically don't move very well in college. Uh, it was kind of a, a strange thing for me because he would he would test well in terms of you know the forty and, and his, his shuttle and all those times, but he really didn't run the ball very well at all as a junior. And I think a lot of that was probably by choice, uh, but it was encouraging to see, I think he's had touchdown runs of 74 and 35 yards already this year. Um, you know, maybe not always the best competition, but not terrible competition either. And that, that's, that's encouraging to see. Yeah, no, it's been, uh, it's been a noticeable <laughs> uptick with, uh, with production with the legs there. And like you said, uh, well, didn't he have a, his three cone or something like that. He had a real impressive, relatively speaking, uh, set of physical uh, drills or performances in physical drills. So you always knew there was some athleticism there. And, uh, you know, you don't want to hype a kid up too much, but certainly the events of the past week or so have made us all eager for uh, any quarterback that might be incoming, uh, whether on the roster or committed otherwise. And Altmeyer's done nothing but, uh, you know, have a, have a really nice beginning of his season. So, uh, went to one prospect in Mississippi. Let's slide on east over to Alabama, bud. Don't want to make uh, too much of an, <laughs> any individual prospect, but uh, a guy that I've really talked about for three or four months now uh, that either he or someone else at the position would really be a, a barometer for how I felt about this class. Maybe some, maybe some positive uh, vibrations on the water surrounding one rod or. I like that. Yeah, Rod Orr uh, may be announcing next week. Uh, I, I spoke to some sources today, and I was like, all right, so if, if he does announce in, in September, where's he going? And the word I got back was that they think Florida State sits in a good spot uh, for Rod Orr right now. A couple reasons for this. One is the relationship with Coach Alex Atkins, who uh, does seem to connect with these kids pretty well. 
uh, as we noted over the summer, he was connecting with some kids that were probably outside their range, <laughs> you know, as far as like, they're not going to sign a kid like Amarius Mims at, at Florida State right now, a storied program, but uh, not really dominant in, in this kid's high school uh, year so far. And certainly won't be this year either. But uh, yeah, but the word I got was that uh, Florida State uh, should be the pick right now. Uh, so I went ahead and put in a, a crystal ball on 24-7 sports. And uh, I think Josh Newberg and probably Sinone or maybe maybe Chris Nee uh, have also put one in there. Uh, Tennessee is is involved here. There's a family connection there. Auburn is not super uh, right now, but as always, we, we've discussed several times with, with Orr you know, that they could emerge as a threat down the stretch. Uh, but if you're Rod Orr and you're watching Florida State and you say, huh, they put Chaz Neal in and that guy looks like he has no business being on a football field, A, you'd be right. And B, you could say, huh, well, I could come in and play behind this guy, Love Taylor, who's a senior. He won't be here next year unless this eligibility thing passes. And I, maybe I could play early on. Uh, so that if I'm Florida State, I, I'm clearly pitching the, the, the idea that you could play fairly early uh, to Rod Orr. I, I think that's that could be an attractive pitch. Yeah, I mean, it would almost be a, a dereliction of your duty to try to sell him on a whole lot of other things. Obviously, uh, you know, you don't necessarily want a kid that's just going to come for uh, the opportunity to play, but certainly you want to hang that out there as much as possible when you're talking about getting a legitimate tackle prospect and yeah, if you can get a war and maybe one of these other, you know, three borderline four-star prospects that we talked about, whether it be from the Midwest or wherever else, and that would certainly go a long way in giving yourself a legitimate offensive line moving forward. So uh, I don't want to, you know, belabor the point, but I, I've said for an awful long time that Rod Orr or someone like Rod Orr uh, will be a massive, one of the first things I look at, uh, whether or not they're in this class or not. And if Florida State is able to get his commitment, keep his commitment, uh, that would be a big, big step forward. Certainly, uh, it would feel somewhat similar to you know going to getting. Yeah, uh, what was the kid out of Ohio? It was a four-star tackle, bud, way back in the day. Uh, Zebra Sanders, I think. Right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. That was that was kind of one of the first steps taken to actually getting a real offensive line and a kind of a transformative piece there. So yeah, it might be, a, might be a throwback to old Zebra Sanders days. So. Man, I, we've been doing this so long that like, do people even know, like, I, I wonder how many of our younger listeners even know <laughs> Zebra Sanders. Maybe they do. I'm guessing they don't. Yeah, probably. Probably. Florida state was horrible at line at the line for a long, long time. It desperately needed to get kids and, Zebra Sanders kind of fell into their lap after I think Georgia or somebody else told him to one spot wasn't going to be there. But uh, enough about 10 years ago recruiting and, and maybe an unnecessarily need to try to tie things back to the last time Florida State kind of climbed the mountain. But uh, yeah, Rod Orr, man, that would be that would be a big one. So we'll continue to monitor it and, and certainly bring you up to date with any information that we have. So Rod Orr, if they get commit, if they get a commit, but certainly uh, have the coaching staff smiling. Speaking of smiling, did you happen to see the smirk on Mike Norvell's face when, when it, it, in the Zoom teleconference he was asked, uh, can you confirm DJ Matthews is in the portal? And he says, what? Yes, I can. I did. I did. If I was acting as a coach consultant, I would say uh, I wouldn't bust that smirk out too many times. Uh, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, I saw that. And, you know, I think uh, yeah, it's not necessarily unique to Norvell or, or Matthews or anybody else when you have a changeover. 
some people's culture, some people's ideas, some people's, uh, you know, vision mesh with people. And sometimes it doesn't. And I'm, you know, I know that there's a couple other names on this list that we're going to talk about. And I think that's just kind of a, a natural process as to how things uh, go. And I think it's going to be, you know, something that we all have to get used to as college football fans. And, and ultimately when we get to talk about recruiting, it's going to shape the way that we evaluate recruiters and the whole kind of recruiting process when it comes to, you know, trying to grab some of these kids from other schools and, and plug temporary holes. But yeah, so Matthews is out. No shock there. Uh, Chapman, a kid from Rome, I think declared today. Uh, yesterday was Bolden, a uh, guy that re- just recently moved position. So, you know, I'm not speaking ill will of, of any of those guys. And, and Bolden certainly seemed to be a generally well-considered around the locker room and stuff like that. But I don't, uh, I don't know that, you know, if we look back in two years in Florida State and where it's, you know, people, fans, us uh, think they should be, that it's going to be because of uh, Jamarcus Chapman left the program per se. So I don't think Chapman's a loss at all. Um, I, I don't really don't think he fits what this coaching staff wants to do on defense. I, I kind of questioned the take of him at the time, if I recall. Uh, Anyway, but like, you know, I, I could see what they were trying to do there. Now with the scheme they're running, I, I don't really think he fits what they want to do at all. He kind of got passed up already by, by Griffiths. So that, that, that one, you see the writing on the wall. With Bolden, um, they're loaded with bodies at defensive back. I'm, I'm kind of reluctant to say they're loaded with studs at defensive back because, you know, of, of what they just did against Georgia Tech. And with DJ, uh, it, it's been reported that, uh, that he's going to graduate and is, is pretty close to getting his degree. So that's awesome. I, I, I hope that's true. And I hope he is able to get his degree. I know he's had some, some really tough circumstances. Norvell being happy that DJ or not happy, but Norvell kind of having that smirk uh, probably was revealing of maybe some of the, uh, some of the kind of maybe, you know, pain in the ass behavior that, <laughs> that he's had to deal with there. Uh, but DJ was always cool with me when I covered him as, as a recruit and as a player. Uh, was was all always nice, and, and I, I don't I don't wish him any ill will. Certainly, uh, other new business. I, I thought this was interesting from David Hale. Did you happen to see this on on Twitter today? David Hale, ESPN. This is the uh, first five versus second five. Yeah, as far as the production of the offensive line, I did see this, I, and I saw your response to it as well. So I, you know, unsurprisingly, there's a a little bit of nuance to things, but uh, I thought it was both telling and uh, and also indicative, you know, as, as the second set of numbers as to maybe how much of it was tied to uh, plays that came off the original script. So I'll, I'll, I don't love reading a zillion numbers in a row here on the show, but but David writes, and, and man, David does a great job for ESPN covering the ACC. He's one of the few ESPN reporters who actually like goes into their incredibly deep stats database and pulls numbers with, with appropriate context. Uh, as opposed to just tweeting narrative stuff, which is often you know nonsense. This is interesting. He, he writes, fodder for FSU offensive line discussion. The differences when even one starter was out there are, are jar- excuse me. The differences when even one starter was out are jarring. But then, so too was the play calling. And so he writes, when all five are on the field, forty nine snaps, four point seven yards of play. When Anybody was missing. So even one starter out, 31 snaps, two and a half yards of play. So not quite double, but I mean, you know, 75% better here uh, for, for when you had your, your full line as opposed to anybody out. And 
I, th- I do think that kind of speaks to the, the, the problems and, and the lack of depth that Florida State has there in the reserve. You continues percentage of plays that went for a loss or no gain, 26% uh, when all five were on the field, 58% when anybody was missing, so more than double. Uh, pressure percentage, again, 20 and 41, so you know, double there. Uh, yards per rush before contact, which is great. You, you want to get some, some of that. Uh, two, two, you know, 2.15 when everybody was out there. Uh, 0.17 when at least one offensive lineman was missing. He also noted the, uh, the, the play calling was, was far different, right? The, they, they went no huddle a lot more when all five were on the field. They huddled uh, quite a bit more when, uh, when everybody else or when, when dudes were out. And then uh, the percentage of pass plays, 59% when everybody was on the field, uh, 80% when at least one guy was missing. And I think all these numbers are very interesting. However, I, I do want to note that I went ahead and parsed this further because I, I'm not convinced that even though David does a great job, I'm not convinced this tells the full, the full story here. So I wrote on Twitter, uh, okay, let's throw a little wrinkle into this. We spoke on the last episode, if you recall, about the script and how much better I thought they looked on script. So let's compare what the offensive lo- what, what the offense looked like with all five guys in there once they got off script to what it looked like when they had at least one dude missing. So all five offensive linemen playing when they were still on their script, which I'm going to define kind of generously here as the first two drives. 18 plays, 113 yards. So that's 6.3 per play. Now, all five offensive linemen playing. So you got your starters in. After the script was done, 31 plays, 114 yards. So that's 3.7 yards per play. So to me, the real true comparison is not the 4.7 against the 2.5 because that's a huge gap. And I don't think this is a nothing thing. I think David's on the right path here. But to me, the real difference is the 3.7 against the 2.5 yards per play. And that to me is extremely relevant because both those numbers are garbage, right? Like neither of them work. You can have all, all five offensive linemen in. Once you got off script, they suck too. They weren't good. They didn't open up holes. They didn't give Blackman a lot of time once they got off script. Like I've, I've heard this narrative. Georgia Tech's defensive line is not good. They're, almost every defensive line you face is much better than Georgia Tech's, I'm pretty sure, especially because you know they had a lot, a lot of their good players or their projected starters out. I mean, to me, the relevant number is once you got off script, we got to see how the offense looks on stuff that it hasn't repped a million times. And you know, like they hadn't literally repped every single day of practice going up to this on, on your scripted plays. And it didn't look any good. I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on that. I, I share your affinity for David and think he does a great job. And I, I think you're also right to point out that there's a, you know, there's a, not speaking an all too often repeated cliche, but there's, there's another layer or two to that onion and that you need to peel back and, and get a little bit better idea. Um, and ultimately, you know, this is not a great answer, but it's not something we're going to, to know for sure for probably two or three more games. I mean, we're going to have to see how much real variance there is, uh, how much this unit's able to play together. and. And ultimately, if some of those uh, small glimmers of opposite, op, op, <laughs> if some of those small glimmers uh, that the optimist of us may look at and, and want to hold on to and, and think that they did a little bit better job in pass protection, whether or not that actually projects across the rest of the year and, and if that's the case. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think there was both a dramatic fall off 
uh, from script to no script, and and then another second dramatic fall off from unit one to uh, and and particularly when you got two players into it, that was just uh, that was just a, a a fire drill, unfortunately. Absolutely. So with that, maybe we'll get into some uh, some listener questions. We've got a lot of an awful lot of them, so let's jump right into them. Uh, if we if we start to see that we're you know too repetitive here, we'll we'll skip or truncate some of the answers. We tried to be somewhat selective, but honestly, we had so many questions, we just wanted to put them down on the sheet and see what we can get to. Matt asked the first question. Matt says, "Hate to be all doom and gloom, but have we seen the end of nationally significant on-field success for Florida State? I don't think that Norvell will fail at Florida State." I just wonder if he, and more so this university, can achieve regular ACC championship status and beyond. I'd like your thoughts on this subject and what your expectations are for the program in the modern college football world. Jumping straight into the uh, straight into the deep stuff here. Yeah, well, I I don't think there's really any reason to be all, all doom and gloom. I mean, you, you're looking at, at you're in a conference that were pretty. Pretty confident is going to remain a power conference, which which means you're going to keep getting one of the big checks. You know, Florida State is not one of those schools that I think is going to going to fall behind uh, to that extent in, in the arms race. I mean, they're not New Mexico State. They're not one of these schools that has to worry about dropping down, you know, to, to the FCS because they can't fund scholarships or, or anything like that. Uh, and they've won a national championship the most recently out of any of the schools in Florida. You know, more more recently than than many other schools have, uh, and Yes, like that was when these current recruits were in middle school, but it's not that long ago. Uh, it's not like, hey, we're, we're saying, oh, hey, they, they did it in 1999. They, they, they did it 2013. Uh, so, no, I, I, uh, I think they absolutely can, can get back to yeah. And they made the playoffs in 14. Yeah, yeah. So the, the recency is there. I, um, these things happen even with some really good programs, and they bounce back all the time. It just it, sometimes it can take a couple of years. Depends on what your roster looks like. Um, you know, when, when you made the decision to fire Willie, you committed yourself to a long term rebuild as an administration. Period. That's what happens when you have three three coaches in a four year span. I told you guys this at the time. Ingram did too. This is why you're seeing like half the guys in, in that 2018 recruiting class transfer out already. You know, I don't think that would happen if you hadn't changed coaches. And there's no doubt in my mind. They would not have changed coaches if they had known this COVID thing was happening. Cause like, you know, but that, that's neither here nor there. To answer the question, no, I, I think they absolutely can get back to winning, winning conference and, and national titles. Yeah. I, I don't see why, why they wouldn't. Yeah. I think if you're somebody that thinks we're going to repeat 93 through 99 or something like that, oh, then no, you need to no. adjust your, yeah. And I, I know you know that. And I, and I know most of our listeners know, you know, I, I think the model will probably be more, you know, three years where maybe you're, you're punching at eight and four, nine and three, maybe seven and five, and 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 then you kind of transition into a three-year run where you've got pieces, uh, and maybe you can challenge for uh, ACC, and then and then work your way back into the playoffs. I love what Florida State's done recently. Michael Alford, absolute home run. Uh, Bruce Warwick, uh, a statement of intent. I mean, a statement of intent that the boosters are willing to pay uh, for people like this. That the you know, and Florida State doesn't have a uh, a, a checkbook that checks could just be blindly written. And we've acknowledged that certainly over the years, uh, but they have made very real steps to, um, you know, making sure this is a building process and a, a one that 
they're not where they are right now for long. And uh, I'm on, I know Saturday sucked and I know losing four, four games to start off the year over the last four years is painful as hell. Uh, but I, I don't, don't let the recency bias of, of how depressing 10 o'clock Saturday night last week felt uh, as to the overall trajectory of the program. 100% agree there. And I'm really not trying to be dismissive of, of Matt's, uh, you know, Matt, Matt's question. It's not automatic that you get back to winning conference and, and competing for national titles. I mean, hell, look at Georgia, right? Georgia has had probably, what, three national championship caliber teams in the last 15 years, I would say. And yet they have not won a title since 1980. They, they put out that hype video today for their new uniforms. And the first 30 seconds of that thing are in standard death because that's their last national title. They they have some throwback uniforms going on this year, which they're not just in standard death. They're in 1980s, you know, like uh, the the base level. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Keith Jackson, Larry Munson, as far as the the announcers on those things, love it. Standard death, a good reminder of how hard it can be to win a national title. But contending for the conference, Absolutely something that, that, that they can do and that you would expect them to get back to do. And, and if, you know, if you win the ACC in, uh, in today's college football, you have a pretty good shot of going to the playoff. Also, you're looking at a team uh, in Clemson that, you know, I don't think Clemson's going to go away, but you also, if you look at a 50 year window, this is the high water, high water marks of, of Clemson athletics. So I, you know, they certainly uh, found something with Dabo and the ability of his. Um, or his ability to have the retention that he's had with his coaching staff is, is really quite remarkable. And there's been some circumstances there that have uh, contributed to that. But, you know, I, I don't know that, uh, you know, Clemson all, overnight or over the past 10 years has turned into, you know, Alabama or something like that, that they're just going to be this perennial power when it comes to the, uh, the college football world. But same time, they've done good things and they've certainly created quite the mountain for Florida State to climb. Uh, next question comes from Vishal. Vishal asks, it doesn't appear this year will be any better than the last two. Should we assume that getting any elite talent isn't going to happen? Is there any hope that we can have a eight or nine win season in the next couple of years? So I think Vishal's question ties in nicely uh, to the prior question because it, it sort of helps to set the timeline for when they could get back. And this is going to be a, a serious rebuild, not not just know, a short, quick flip. Uh, no, they're not going to get much elite talent in this recruiting class. I think this staff was hoping that they could show some on-field improvement. Uh, that doesn't look like that's going to happen too much this year so far. Uh, and do they have any hope for an eight or nine win season in the next couple of years? Yes, absolutely. This year, I think we can safely flush the eight plus win uh, plateau. Granted, they're only, they're only playing 11 games, uh, but even with 11 plus a bowl game potentially, which they can still go to easily. I, I have a hard time seeing them go, what, seven and four plus the bowl game to get to eight. So uh, unlikely to get that this year. Yeah, I, I do think you're not going to get much elite talent in this recruiting class. Uh, Norvell has a reputation as a developer and I don't know want to say scouter, but like developer of, of talent. And he's going to have to do that in this class because they're not going to get a whole lot of ready-made bodies to come in. Yeah. Just be elite at filling your needs. Uh, that's, that's what I ask of you, you know, get enough places filled to where you don't have some of these glaring holes and, and uh, 
you know, look, look to build relationships with what is hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, a much more traditional recruiting cycle next year. Uh, you can lean on some of the advantageous aspects of Florida State uh, historically has been able to enjoy on the recruiting trail and, uh, and hopefully start to kind of build the bricks that lead to you getting some of these high four and five stars to, to sign with you in December or February. But yeah, not probably not going to be happening any time in the immediate future. All right, uh, let's go to Matt. Uh, had it, is this the same Matt that asked us the, uh, the first question? Uh, I, I do not believe so. I think we have a couple Matt supporters, and it may be, but uh, normally if we have the same uh, question from one individual, I'll group them together. So. Got it. Okay, so I, I, just, I only asked because uh, Matt is kind of in, in a – both Matts are in kind of a downer mood uh, tonight. But uh, several people were when they sent in questions this week, which is understandable. Uh, so Matt asks, uh, how does Norvell break the cycle? It looks like this will be another poor season, so it will affect recruiting. How can he recruit at a high level in order to bring in better players to resolve the problem? Seems like a vicious cycle. You know, honestly, he just needs to get guys who fit his system and get some depth so that they can get, you know, back to winning eight or nine games a year. It, Norvell is not going to be able to skip that stage. Not, not, not when you have free coaches in four years. Your roster is going to be jacked up this bad this year. It's going to be probably worse roster next year, actually. And then, you know, you have to start looking at 2022, 2023 as, as times where perhaps, you know, you, you could start to flip this thing and get back to winning, you know, to where you're not sweating a bowl game. I, I honestly, I think 22 is probably the first year where you're not going to be worried about, are, is, is FSU going to make a bowl? Um, you're going to have to show some steady improvement. Cause I, I, like next year, I think bowl, bowl is absolutely in jeopardy, to be honest, given, given the schedule they have. You're going to have to show improvement. You're going to have to, uh, basically hope that the improvement that you get at quarterback and offensive line, which I do believe they'll get, is enough to offset the short-term loss of some of your elite talent, even if that elite talent is not playing to that standard, which certainly Marvin and Terry did not play uh, up to the standard that their you know, pre-draft rankings would suggest against Georgia Tech. Uh, that's how you how you try to keep your head above water in, in 21, in, in a year in which, because of your developmental deficit that you've been on, I don't think you really are going to have a whole lot of elite talent. Uh, so you're going to have to show, hey, we, we, we develop kids. Uh, you know, we, we do this, we do that. And then you're going to have to make sure your staff has enough good recruiters on that staff. And I think that's something they're going to have to look at this offseason, right? I mean, just like you know, Jimbo's staff didn't keep everybody together for, for all time. I think Norvell and his, and his guys are going to have to think about, okay, does it really matter if we win eight or nine? Or is it, is it more important if, if we get some guys who can go out and, and win some recruiting battles and really sell hope and hype uh, and, and you know, do that kind of formula? So that, that's how they get it back, but there, there's no magic formula to get it back quickly because it won't happen quickly. You know, I'm a big believer that, that hard work uh, ultimately creates luck or at least creates uh, the potential for you to take advantage of an opportunity. And uh, I, the staff will work its rear end off, definitely, and really just need to, you need to have a, you know, a kid one of these kids click with a position coach or something like that, that maybe you wouldn't otherwise get right now. I mean, I, I think you got to have some fortuitous situations, sign one of these kids that can be kind of a bellwether prospect and, and maybe that's Jennings, maybe it's not. Um, and then continue to build around that and, you know, make Florida state, make Florida state cool again. And I, I you know, I'll, I'll punch myself in the face for constantly referencing 10, 12 years ago, but you got to get a kid like Jeff Luke to commit. You got to get a kid like James Walter Jr. or something like that uh, to commit that all these other prospects look at go, yeah, that dude's legit as hell and could have gone anywhere. And he's going to Florida State because 
Florida State's back on the way up. So, by the way, can we talk about Jennings for a second? I I, I know I've caught I've caught some hell for saying he's going he's going to play the Fox role. Is there any doubt in your mind he's going to start in the Fox role as a true freshman? Oh, he he'll absent injury. He's he takes the first snap next year. I'm almost certain of it. I, I'm thinking about this. I'm like, I would easily take him over Josh Griffiths. Have haven't seen both of them in person in, in that role. There's really no doubt in my mind. Even if Janarius were to come back again, he doesn't look very good in, in the Fox role. I, I don't think he has that versatility that is needed to play that. So, yeah, I, I think he's going to be a very valuable player for them, and, uh, and as, as a guy who can do all three, you know, rush the passer, play the run, and and, and drop uh, you know, drop in, in short zone coverage, not not play and and be isoed. Christian comes with the next question. Christian says Taggart was as Taggart was hyped up to be a really good recruiter, but couldn't win enough to take advantage of that recruiting ability. In a season where we will probably be lucky just to finish above 500, what does Norvell have to do to avoid being the opposite of Tag? By that, I mean not being able to show enough of his coaching prowess because he can't get the players in. Well, uh, the main thing I would say here is that like nobody's getting fired for an awful long time because they really didn't have the money to fire Willie and they had to kind of smoke and mirrors that thing. Uh, and so it, you, you can't kind of fake it till you make it twice as far as finding the money to pay a buyout. I was talking to somebody uh, last night, actually, and he was like, yeah, dude, nobody's getting fired this offseason. Unless South Carolina decides they want to open open the chest and, and, and fire Muschamp to try and get Billy Napier out of, out of Louisiana and, and be the only real team on the market. Like nobody's getting fired. I, I think Morvell is going to get a lot of time, uh, and and I think he will either succeed or fail on his merits. I, I don't think it's going to be a situation where he is, uh, you know, gotten rid of prematurely uh, because they don't have the money to do it. Is that is that, is that an okay answer to this? I, I want to make sure we're, we're answering Christian's question. Um, he's right that like, yeah, if, if this is a staff that has to sell their record, they're not going to have anything to sell this year. He's right. They, th- this has to be a long tail thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a good potential, you know, kind of dichotomy to bring up as far as what we thought Taggart would be. And then the liability that kind of kept him from becoming that and uh, the potential for this to be the opposite. Uh, I will say that, you know, if you're the head coach and your rep is that you're a recruiter, you know, you certainly got to be involved in that recruitment and you've got to, uh, be some of the the individuals that go in and win those battles. If you're a, a head coach whose liability is maybe recruiting, and I don't think that's the case for Norvell at all, it's just not what he's labeled as a specialist, then you can hire assistants. You can kind of build around you to where uh, you can kind of protect that uh, shortcoming if it really is one. So uh, Christian says, Christian, we just answered your question. Excuse me. Thomas asks, if Norvell wins only three or four games this year, Where's the program in five years? It seems to me we are already, un- <laughs> as you mentioned, you could tell these, uh, most of these questions were written in the, the tenor of Sunday night when the, the wounds were still fresh. But uh, to jump back into Thomas's question, it seems to me we are already unlikely to follow the new coach equals new energy equals more wins equals elite recruiting equals national championship uh, contention cycle. So maybe a job well done for Norvell is getting us back to eight or nine wins for, three, for two to three consecutive seasons. And it'll be the next guy who gets the national championship cycle started for us. You know, this is actually a really interesting question. 
I think my, my main point here that I would make is that if you were winning three or four years in any other year, but this one, I really think that like you, we could say this is just really unfortunate, unfortunate circumstances that, that I could torpedo somebody. If you're winning three to four games, you're saying in this year, right? It, no, no, no. In any other year, except for this one, this year, in almost any kind of business you're in, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what, what what you guys look like, but like in any kind of business, man, like the meetings you're having right now, or like, all right, so these are COVID adjusted numbers, obviously. Like, we're going to compare this to last year and our and our our last five, last three, whatever, whatever, whatever you like to compare it to. And you're like, yeah, but this is COVID, and it's just really, really wonky. I think it's very easy to wave your hand and dismiss it this year, and I think that this staff uh, largely will be able to do that. Um, I was not one that was buying in on, on the idea they were going to capture the energy from winning a bunch of games this year, because uh, especially not once the COVID thing happened. Uh, they, they seem unlikely to follow the new energy equals more wins equals elite recruiting equals national championship attention cycle. I, I agree with that. Um, but at the same time, and look, m- maybe this guy's right. The key for Norvell is going to be to get to that you know, eight or nine win win thing, and not plateau, and 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 to, and to be able to sell the development and the improvement. If he can't, then Thomas is right. If he can, then he has a chance to be around for a long time. All right, Nolcast brought to you by Shannon Young and Noel Loans eight four four FSU Loan. That's eight four four FSU Loan. Find out why almost eighty Nolcast listeners have used Shannon for their their home loan. I use them for a home loan and my refi. There's a reason I trust these guys. You should too, in my opinion. Give them a call, 844 Loan to find out why. All right, Ingram. So our next question here comes from Andy. And Andy says, hey, uh, uh, Andy, random question first. Butter Ingram, what is your game day setup? Oh, cool. Multi-screens, chair, snacks, beverages, et cetera. I put this in here just because it's a bit of a, hey, are we always going to suck uh, type question. So, uh, you know, a little, little bit of a lighthearted diversion from, from the first five questions. Uh, Andy, I'll, I'll fire off here first. If, I'm, if it's a non-Florida State game, uh, then I like to kind of be in my office where I have a three-screen setup. I can look at different things. Um, if Florida State's yet to play, I can, you know, satisfy my neurotic itch to try to find some piece of information that I'm not otherwise familiar with about the game uh, while still having two games on either other screen. And when it transitions into Florida State's game, then I move into the, you know, large flat screen television that all of us have, uh, as, <laughs> as uh, sports consumers have been so fortunate to be able to have over the last five years or so. If it's a competitive game, then I kind of ask people not to. I don't, I don't run around and tell everybody to shut up, but I don't really want to talk. I don't really want to, uh, you know, explain why that penalty was called or whatever else. I just want to sit and watch the game and be a neurotic asshole. So yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my game day setup. Are you saying? I bet you a lot of our listeners are like this too. Like they don't really like going to this part, like like a Knowles party with like a bunch of really casual FSU fans who are going to be talking throughout the whole thing and not really paying attention to the game and. No, <laughs> if it's a if it's like a Miami game or something, I'm not watching. I'm I'm not watching with anybody, anybody, anybody. Uh, like I'll tell my girlfriend to politely just go away and let me watch the game. Yeah, so <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it is. First of all, I'm the same way. Uh, my setup here is 
So I have my three screens on my desktop, and then I usually have my laptop because I've got my middle screen here for my, you know, my, my monitor stand kind of high enough to where I can have my laptop kind of nestled underneath it. And then above and to the left of my three screens from the desktop, I have my, my TV in my office. So I can technically go five screens. And then if I grab the Surface tablet, I guess I could go six if I really need to. So I have my one, I have my one monitor, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in portrait, uh, mode. So I, I can see the whole odd screen, you know, like, uh, so I can see where the money's coming in on the offshores and, and see those popping and changing. You know, when I watch college football nowadays, like if I'm watching with my dad or, you know, some friends, that's awesome. And I, I didn't mean to say it sarcastically like that. That's, you know, that, that's legitimately fun, but like it does feel like work for me. And if I'm watching it, I'm thinking, all right, well, like how can I turn this into content? I mean, I'm, the, you know, I'm origination now, so I have to think of ideas for everybody. So I'm constantly like either sketching down in, in a notebook or, or in, you know, on my phone or my head, like, okay, we could, we could turn something to this or, Hey, remember to tell this guy that I, that I saw this or like, we should, we should figure out why this thing is the way this is, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know, man. I, I have trouble just relaxing and watching college football anymore. Um, because it does feel like work. And I think this is a really awesome job and I, I don't want it to sound like it's not, but it, I definitely, uh, I definitely kind of like, all right, it's, this feels like work. And so I want to have the screen that I can get the most exp- or the setup where I can get the most exposure to it uh, as possible. All right. So back into uh, <laughs> the second part of Andy's question, which he starts with frustrated, frustrated hypothetical. So, uh, Back to the previous tenor and tone. Why does it seem like so many teams can have success with a true freshman quarterback but us? I'm sure there's sample bias of games, but what I watch, it feels like there's power five teams all the time with at least a decent true freshman quarterback starting. Well, uh, let's go ahead and investigate this claim. How many quarterbacks last year, freshman quarterbacks, do you think? Uh, let's just let's check this out, all right? Tell me which freshman quarterbacks. Was, was Slovis a, a true freshman last year? He was, right? Well, uh, yeah. I'll also say that if we've, as a program, we've never, you know, and we've just been done wrong by freshman quarterbacks. It's not like we uh, have thrown a lot of freshmen out there that have been spectacular failures or anything like that. This is true. But I, I, I get what he's saying. I, get, I mean, basically saying, why, why are we playing James? Why aren't we sampling freshmen out there? Because everybody else seems to be able to do it. Jaron Williams last year for Miami did not have a, a, a tremendous year. When I pull up the CFB stats and I sort by you know, just games versus FBS opponents and I control F for, for you know, freshmen, uh, there's a couple names in the, in the middle and the top. Most names, though, are way, way at the bottom. There's a reason for that. So I do think part of the answer to, to Andy's question and it's a good question. It's simply probably selection bias, right? The guys who, who were really good as true freshmen stand out in our heads, but we don't think about guys like Jordan McLeod, who, you know, threw just as many picks as he did touchdowns last year for, for USF or, you know, Jack Plummer for Purdue. I don't even think most, most people know who that is or, you know, Garrett Schrader for Mississippi State or, you know, UConn's quarterback or, or, or Nevada's or, uh, Bo Nix at Auburn. Look, Bo Nix at Auburn got a ton of hype. Do you want to know what Bo Nix's numbers were last year against FBS teams? 
He was 86th in the nation in passer rating. He was under seven yards per attempt, 124 quarterback rating, only 57% completions. Like, I do think there's a selection bias uh, at play here to where we, we remember the really good true freshman quarterbacks and we don't keep in mind that they are pretty much outliers. Yeah, well, there's a recency bias amongst this fan base, too, because we watched one go to UNC and start last year, and you saw one walk into Dope Campbell and beat you last Saturday. Uh, and both of those kids happened to be committed to you at some point in time. So uh, probably probably a little bit of a sore subject amongst this fan base in general. Yeah, I, I would agree. Kessna, uh, we already basically tackled uh, Kessna's question there because we, we said there's really no way to, to, to get to uh, – no, you, you can still get to seven wins if you include the bowl game. What did you do real quickly uh, with your? How did you address last Saturday in your numbers? And I'll just I'll just do what I did. Obviously, Georgia Tech was the number one game, non Jack State for me from a win percentage. So you take that all, obviously and unfortunately. Uh, and then I looked at pretty much just every other game that I had, bud. And if I had an eighty-two percent confidence rating, I took that down to uh, ten points. If it was eighty-two, I took it to seventy-two, and just kind of reassessed where I thought uh, Florida State would, would sort out after one game. What I did was I, I – so I, I used Bill Connolly and, and FPI and, and a couple, couple non-public power ratings, and I, I blend them together. I think, they're, I think those are pretty good. And then I actually made a manual adjustment extra downward because I, like, th- those power ratings don't realize how many important guys were out for Georgia Tech. you know. Uh, and so I, I, I came away – Disliking FSU's performance even more than those power ratings did. Um, I, I, I'm not down there at three, but but I am kind of in that four and seven range right now. Uh, and losing to Georgia Tech, a it took away, like, you know, an extremely high projected win game and turned it into an L. So that's a big swing right there. But you also have to adjust your future games to account for just how bad the team looked. Like, like that, we we cannot ignore that. What do you recommend to drink during the rest of the games on our schedule? Austin says, well, we, we, we certainly recommend that you drink at Madison Social and Township. We do recommend that. And we, uh, well, Bud, do you know what today was at the month? Uh, let me see. Today is a Thursday. It is the, uh, Ruben Day. Has to be Ruben Day. Ruben Day. Absolutely. Ruben Day. Fantastic day as always. Uh, obviously, if you're listening to this now. You'll just have to mark your schedule for next month, but uh, always a favorite of mine and a favorite of many of Madison Social's uh, longtime supporters. Had a listener uh, put a picture of the Nolcast hat out on social media today. That thing is uh, certainly good looking, and if you have an interest in it, we could point you to madisonsocial.com backslash Nolcast. Uh, but we say it all the time. Matt was uh, really uh, the driving force uh, in in some manner for us converting from where we were and into the Nolcast, uh, just a guy who we've always been able to, you know, build some of the commercial aspects of it around. And it's been there uh, for us since day one. And we would certainly encourage you guys to support him and his broader team in whatever manner possible. Madison Social is the one that we always look at, but uh, Township is is honestly one of the best spots in Tallahassee, in my opinion. And uh, now that we got Centrale back, it's just a fantastic trio down there, College Town, great people, great supporters of Florida State Athletics, and as always, thank you to Ford the Table Restaurant Group. So with, with Michael's question, he, he essentially asks, uh, like, how do you get out of this cycle of poor quarterback play and poor offensive line play, uh, you know, making it so where running backs and receivers aren't, aren't, aren't featured and uh, th- then they, they don't want to come, come to Florida State, et cetera. 
I think we kind of already talked about this. We have like, like you have to make sure that the guys who are already on your campus in, in Purdy or maybe Rodemaker or the guys you expect to come on Altmeyer, uh, if you're able to get a Rod or, um, the current offensive lineman you already have, you have to keep developing them in order, in order to make some strides. Uh, but this is kind of another variant of the, if, if they're not able to get any wins, how, how are they going to get a product to sell? And my answer is still good recruiters can usually recruit reasonably well regardless now it is related somewhat to your product but you have to make sure you have enough good recruiters on this staff you know I, they, they might need to, to re-examine that a little bit because they're not going to have quite the on-field product to sell especially not in, in this weird covid year i think the second part of his, his question is something we can dive into though because it's maybe a misconception he writes uh, how do the shadow recruiters get their money such as if i donate five large to florida state does all of that go to the university or does a portion of that go to the bagmen? I'm tired of all this sucking uh, frowny face. Let's make it real clear. If you donate <laughs> to the university, zero, it goes to the university. <laughs> uh, I saw that about three questions ago out of the corner of my eye and just started, just started chuckling. Uh, great question. I'm tired of sucking too. A lot of people are. Um, and kind of, Kind of to your original question there, uh, Michael, I, I think, you know, let's say some shadow recruiters are out there. I, w- I wouldn't put a whole lot of shadow resources towards wide receivers and, and running backs right now. I just think Florida State, uh, where they're located, the amount of recruits, and I'm not discounting those two positions, but, man, you can get kids that can win you college football games just from where you're located and, and some of the counties and cities that are uh, close to Tallahassee and, and some of the ones that you have historical access to. Uh, let's get these shadow guys grabbing tackles, guards, uh, and some of these positions that are otherwise not plentiful. And, uh, you know, the, the positions at Florida State is really kind of in desperate need of, of transformation. I agree with you on that. But, yeah, it, it's, it's individual boosters who sometimes uh, may have some kind of third-party coordination with the staff or somebody on recruiting staff that lets them know who the school really uh, feels like they're they're close enough for that maybe a, a bag could tip things their way. How bad do you really want him? That's the question. That Absolutely. was the famous question, right? About, a, about a certain receiver that, that lives uh, plays up close to you. That was uh, that was one of the ones where you, you, just because you and just because you get a shadow guy involved doesn't mean uh, doesn't mean anything's guaranteed either. Uh, as is a great reminder. Sometimes, sometimes the governor might might declare a state of emergency. <laughs> Sometimes there's larger powers that uh, that can overcome an otherwise aggressive uh, pursuit of a young student athlete. All right, Anthony asked, watching the game on Saturday, I was shocked to see the lack of explosiveness from any of our skill position players. Uh, Anthony, I share that sentiment. I don't want to be overly pessimistic, but I honestly have a difficult time seeing this team win more than three or four games this year. Given the performance on Saturday, how does a staff with no great recruiting ties in Florida get the necessary influx of talent that is needed? Staff has good recruiting ties outside of Florida, but sadly Florida State does not have the juice to get elite out-of-state talents to come to Florida State right now. Given the struggle in recruiting the last couple of years and this year so far, should Florida State fans be ready to accept the reality uh, that things won't get better until the 23 or possibly the 24 season? So I kind of feel like we already answered this as far as timeline and, and, and how they need to go about recruiting, but, but I'm interested in, uh, I, I left this on the sheet uh, in, instead of just marking it during the show, uh, because I, I do think there's an interesting point here uh, about how Florida State's 
skill guys did not look explosive. And I was texting back and forth with, with Roddy Jones of, of ACC Network uh, today uh, about this. And, and, you know, he obviously played for Georgia Tech. And he's like, what do you chalk the speed difference up to? He's like, look, I, I think Georgia Tech did fly around. Like, do you think this is like a load management thing? Did, did they work him too hard in camp? I, I said, I really don't know. I, I was kind of curious to get your thoughts on this. Uh, maybe uh, it could be related to, this is sounds crazy, but they looked distinctly slower to me after the rain delay. M- maybe Florida State did not handle getting warmed up again properly after the rain delay. I don't know that. I'm just throwing out things here. Like Terry and uh, McDonald and those dudes looked pl- look plenty fast pre-rain delay and it looks like that, that kind of took some juice out of them yeah the this i'm glad you kept it in for both the speed uh and skill position players and also some of the talk about geography uh you know it's it's a little bit of a different wrinkle uh as far as anthony's question i wish i knew i wish i knew the answer to it man i mean i i think you bring up a good point that certainly after delay looked like uh it impacted some uh, travis J looked like a fast player at times I'm not trying to do bad radio here and just to give silence, but honestly, I'm trying to think of who else looked explosive. As far as guys who, who had some juice to him, Travis J. Uh, I thought Gaynor did. Honestly, uh, Asante did not post interception look like he had much juice. Woody had a nice little half second of explosion on a blitz. Yeah, Tamari did not play with a lot of energy. Uh, very low effort on on some blocking attempts, by the way. I, I don't know if we... Not not surprising, unfortunately, but uh, we'll just see how much that really is. Yeah, okay. I, I, it's it's a bizarre question to sit here and talk about, you know, why Florida State looked uh, the less athletic, explosive of the teams. And maybe it was a terrain thing. Maybe it was a cleat thing. Who knows? Uh, um, you know, let's not have Mike Norvell throw the equipment staff under the bus uh, in a in a repeat of game one last year with, a, with another part of the team. But uh, I... We'll just have to see. We'll just have to see if that's a, a reoccurring theme. I would, I would certainly hope not and would be very surprised. Excited, uh, <laughs> excited and energetic, uh, and, and we'll do so with great pace, uh, unlike what we just talked about on the field, to talk about my friends at Congruity, our friends at Congruity. Uh, Congruity is experience your business optimized, highly customized, highly customized HR solutions designed to enhance your brand, save time, save money, and reduce business risks. Comprehensive, highly customized solutions, whether it be in HR and compliance, payroll and tax administration, workers' comp and safety, employee benefits, time and attendance, and all of this with best-in-class technology. Great people, a great team uh, to let your business run in as optimized a fashion. Contact Matt Lewis, our friend, supporter of the Nolcast, 844-247-4100. Or Knowles, N-O-L-E-S, at congruityhr.com. All right, so we have a lot of questions tonight about James Blackman, including one that I posed on Twitter, which I thought was, was kind of interesting. So let, let's go ahead and lead with this Bud Elliott question. Uh, and I said, I actually forgot who sent this to us, so apologies. But the, the question was, uh, I like Norvell a lot, but how does he not bring in a transfer after seeing the quarterback room and watching the tape? Can you discuss this in a later episode? Because it seems like a big miss and significant to Norvell's tenure. Certainly I can. Uh, here's what, what I see. And this is not a Norvell thing. This is just coaches all over the place thing. I think you'll agree with me. Coaches want to see how players play and, and, and react and, and take 
to their coaching. Okay. Norvell being brought in probably heard a lot of stuff from the administration about how Willie Tucker can't coach. So he's trying not to judge James Blackman until he gets a chance to work with him. Well, guess what? He didn't get that chance to work with him until, until this fall when it was far too late to actually take a transfer quarterback who could make an impact. Do I think Mike Norvell thinks James Blackman could be a good quarterback in his system? At this point, I probably, I kind of doubt that, that he thinks that. If you want to apply the truth serum, you know, what do you think would happen? But again, we have to judge these decisions based on what we knew at the time of the decision. And at the time of the decision, Norvell had not really had a chance to work with Blackman at all. What, what did the issue get? Three string practices, I think now, or did they get four? That's basically why is now I countered on Twitter. If Norvell had had a spring with, with Blackman, do you think he would go out and pursue a transfer quarterback? Yeah, it's a good question. And you know, not to, not to say that they didn't try to pursue guys out there, maybe uh, to some extent when they have done so a lot more aggressively and when they broaden the window of people that they were looking at, I think it's a great, great question. I'm not really sure, but I, I don't know that some of James's, flaws really present themselves in a spring-like setting. Maybe they do in a game. Maybe they do in a, uh, you know, that that kind of last scrimmage before the game that's probably the most likely uh, or at least the uh, the closest representation of a game that you get in spring. Uh, but ultimately, I think James is a, a guy who can look uh, decent in practice and uh, and has an arm strong enough to, to do some things to impress you. Um, He's, he's never looked brilliant in practice because he's, he's, you know, obviously multiple coaches have decided to go with other people when looking at him. Uh, but I'm not sure the real, the biggest flaws that I see in James present themselves in a practice type situation. I think he gets way too emotional. His uh, line of vision seems to shrink down to the most tunnel of tunnel visions. And I don't know if that happens in practice or not. It's almost like he plays on tilt at times. You know, to, to use a, a, a poker term there. Uh, a couple other related Blackman questions, though. Chris said uh, Blackman looked terrible. Any chance we see a change? I, I think we, we covered this in, in the last episode. There is a chance that we could see a change. Part of that's going to be on the Cheva Party timeline. Uh, and then again, like, who knows if Cheva Party was actually going to have a real shot to, to take the job from Blackman if he had a full, uh, full fall camp. So I, I'm not somebody who thinks that they're just going to insert Purdy over, over Blackman soon. I could be wrong on this. I don't. I don't think I am. It would not surprise me if you see multiple quarterbacks play against Miami, and that you know that would include Jordan Travis. Maybe you use some Travis J. Wildcat uh, with, with with Tate Rodemaker. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible that, that he could get snaps, but based on what I saw of him in, in Army All America Week, I, I'm not super not super high on his short term. Did you see, uh, I know we've run late, so I don't want to take us too far off script. Did you see the, uh, and, and you may already be familiar with it, but Valdosta's quarterback, uh, Rush Probst, got, uh, got his parents to temporarily legally separate so that he could transfer in from California and be immediately able to play because the whole family unit has to move together in Georgia for that to be the case. So um, I just think that's hilarious. Obviously, that's where Rotomaker came from, and uh, Rush Probes doing Rush Probes things. So good for him. Although clearly, uh, you know Tate did not play for 
Rush Probst because no, Tate yeah. played for his dad, who was then kind of <laughs> ridiculous <laughs> at the time, mysteriously let go, uh, and and then uh, we we figured out why. So yeah, that's uh, that's where that that question came from. Hilarious, good for him, good for him. So Je- Jeff asked one more Blackman thing. I think we've kind of talked about this though. Jeff wants to know: Would you just accept this season as a lost cause and and go youth movement at the quarterback position? Yeah, I, I think uh, I think at some point I would. Yeah, we have a good maybe ten minutes on this or so, Jeff, on the last one, and and I realize that you probably posed this question uh, before we did that, so I'm not being critical of you, but uh, I basically said yes. Uh, Bud said yes, but perhaps with a clause that we wait a couple of weeks uh, because of some of the intricacies of recruiting. And uh, I thought Bud's answer is, uh, is an interesting one. And if you haven't uh, listened to the past podcast, if nothing else, I'd go back and try to find that conversation. Let's get into a couple of new business questions here before we call it a night. Uh, Max says, uh, with the tight end being such a weak spot in the run game, uh, why have we not heard about Marcus and Douglas yet? A lot of people, including y'all, were high on him as a possible steal in the class. I know he's still very new to the game and a true freshman, but at 6'4", 255, and a natural athlete, it seems like he could make an impact in the blocking game. Uh, I, I just don't think he's anywhere close to ready to play. N- nothing that I've been told suggests that he's going to play this year. I, I like He is a long-term potential upside guy, not anybody who's going to play early. Yeah, it's a big, it's a big project, and uh, you know maybe, maybe you could see him at the end of the year uh, if it comes along well, if you have injuries, if you you know have a couple games to spur, well, obviously nobody's eligibility is going to be impacted by this year. But he's a project. It doesn't mean all the things that we said weren't true, or that the upside isn't there. And you're just a kid talking about a kid with exceptionally limited background, and uh, and maybe not you know ready to step right into uh, what's required of of playing big time college football. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take uh, take Connor's question. I have not read this one yet, so I might butcher my... Have you read this one already? Connor writes, it's a future roster composition question. With the NCAA's eligibility ruling opening the door for a record number of grad transfers for the 2021 season, combined with the lackluster recruiting effort from the staff due to the effects of the coronavirus, could Norvell take a large amount of grad transfers and a small 2021 recruiting class in the offseason to patch up the roster? This would allow those grad transfers to move on after 2021 and give Norvell the opportunity to take a larger 2022 recruiting class where he would, in theory, have a better chance at landing higher-level players, assuming that recruiting returns to normalcy. And I assume that he's also uh, including the potential that maybe some of those grad transfers uh, would help them have a a better season next year. I I think if Norvell felt that he was going to be squeezed as far as the length of his leash here, that this would be a strategy that would be very interesting to employ. However, I think he is sharp enough to know that, that he's going to get a lot of leeway. Uh, so I don't expect him to do this to an extreme. But they showed this year that they were very willing to use the transfer market. I think if they had more spots this year, they would have taken even more transfers. And I do think that they will take, uh, well, I think they'll be continually aggressive in the transfer market. You know, the transfers that they got so far, most of them are contributing or at least project to be contributors. Maybe not all starters, but at least some contributors. There's very few who, you know, aren't doing anything for you. Obviously, the Wilson at tight end, but that's purely injury related. I think he was probably going to be your starter or at least a co-starter at tight end. Um, 
it's an interesting strategy. At the same time, I think upside wise, you want to get some of these young guys in the program and start developing developing them. If you're Mike Norvell, we talk about time and timelines. I don't know that that you can really afford for your first class that you actually bring in to be the uh, that like you actually care about and are proud of to be the 2022 class. Like you need to get some something done in this 21 class. You, you can't just have this be a total dud. Yeah, it's going to be uh, it's going to be fascinating, and and I'm you know sure you've thought about this with the profession that you have, and and I know you've thought about this, but you know we're really all going to have to change our opinions as to how we evaluate recruiters. It's just a different world out there. Obviously, the traditional cycle of, you know, identifying a kid as a sophomore, getting in front of him, getting him on campus as a junior, solidifying their relationship, uh, landing a commitment as a senior, that's, that's going to happen. That's going to be there. But a lot of this is going to be, uh, you know, building a relationship over four and a half weeks and convincing a tackle that that's where you need to go. And uh, it's just going to change the landscape. And, you know, I think you're right. I think this is almost like, you know, trying to build a uh, – an NFL team or, or maybe an elite uh, soccer club. You got to bring up enough kids out of your academy to be able to uh, play them, or, and you got to build your own spots. And then you got to select uh, in free agency or the transfer market or whatever it may be. And another sports uh, analogy that you want to use, you got to hit hit up your weak spots and kind of solidify your roster uh, via that. But it's going to completely, you know, change the recruiting process. And I think ultimately it's going to completely change how we evaluate recruiters and how we look at guys and judge them. Uh, you're going to be able to, you're going to have to recruit over the three, three and a half year window that I talked about. And you're going to have to recruit over the three and a half week window. Uh, and it, it'll be fascinating to watch how it plays out. I also want to point out that uh, with the dead period being extended through the end of the year, and I anticipate that, that it may be extended even longer. Uh, we have to keep in mind, I was thinking we were going to have just a huge epic decommit season this year. And I guess it's still possible, but I don't know what the impetus for the decommits would be if kids are not able to visit campuses and actually form relationships. But kids are going to sign scholarships. I think we are going to see a record number of transfers from the 2021 recruiting class because a lot of them are going to realize that, hey, we made a mistake as far as take, like, like choosing this place. And a lot of them are going to, going to realize as far as on the coaching staff side, hey, we probably made a mistake signing this dude. So there's going to be a ton of dudes who are, who are available on the transfer market after next fall from this 2021 recruiting class that Florida State is recruiting right now. So it's going to be very important that they continue to maintain relationships with these guys who they were never able to get get on campus so that when these kids do get homesick or decide that, hey, where, where I went was not for me, that they're able to get in on some of these recruitments and, and get some of these guys as basically bounce backs. But it's not on the script, man, but I want to do something that is my favorite <laughs> favorite thing that we get to do on the Noel cast, and that is talk about some former players getting rich as hell, which is awesome. We're celebrating Dalvin Cook and Jalen tonight. Dalvin reaches a five-year, $63 million contract. Hell, effing yes, that is brilliant. Good for you, Dalvin. Awesome. That's fantastic. Jalen, cool, $105 million. Yes, sir. Largest contracted defensive back ever received. Ramsey signed a five-year deal worth up to $105 million. The deal includes $71.2 million in guaranteed money. So uh, I feel like we should just have a little segment that we do every once in a while uh, celebrating these dudes getting absolutely 
wealthy as hell, and that's awesome to see two of the better Florida State players both signing, uh, two better of the Florida State players certainly in the last 10 years signing kind of game-changing, life-changing, and family tree-changing contracts. Good for them. Also, uh, to note the guaranteed money in Dalvin's deal, 28.2, including 15 and a half of that up front in the form of a signing bonus. So, Signing bonus. Hope he's got a great financial advisor. Hope both of them do. And uh, hope they do uh, good things with that money. That's awesome. Maybe he will start a business and use congruity. <laughs> I like it. Uh, unfortunately, Shannon, I'm not sure he needs a loan. Well, he may go into investment real estate. I think uh, that's true. That's true. I think Winky said that he uh, he he made more more money investing his uh, baseball money, and that he was a millionaire many times over by the time he got to Florida State because of what he did with his original baseball contract money and some apartments and stuff like that. So good for him. That has to be a pretty incredible, like off-field career, by the way, to like be you know twenty-five years old, arrive at Florida State, and already be a millionaire after being a pro baseball player. Yeah, I think I think old Wink had a good time with it. Certainly uh, <laughs> enjoyed his time at Tallahassee. I mean, I'm sure if you can imagine, you know, if you can if you can imagine any twenty-six or twenty-seven year old getting dropped onto onto a campus, being the quarterback, and you know already having two commas in your checking account. Uh, That'll do good things, I'm sure. Enjoyed it tonight, man. Uh, I, I feel like uh, it sucks they keep losing, but we keep cranking out content. People keep, keep listening. People keep sending in questions. We love them for it. And uh, Yeah, another show coming up. Keep the faith. I know Saturday was, was really, really tough. Uh, there's some things to be concerned about, and there's some things that will revert to form and, and not be as nasty as we, we saw. So uh, fun to be able to do this as always. Enjoy a good bi-week conversation. Thank you to all those who support the Nolcast. We'll talk to you soon. And uh, there's no Jacksonville State game to watch this weekend, by the way. So we, we will not uh, we, we will not be able to tell what uh, what Jack State uh, you know will look like. But there is a Miami game. If you want to get kind of a feel for how Miami might look, they played Louisville. Louisville's defense was pretty bad last year. Miami dropped a 50 spot on them, or I think 52. So. That, that could be a decent gauge for uh, for just how good this Miami offense is. We, we, we shall see. We'll see you guys soon. This has been the Nolcast. The Nolcast is created and hosted by Bud Elliott and Ingram Smith, music by Judson Wright, and produced by Justin Robinson. Go Knowles.